You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to this Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and I have the huge privilege today of speaking with Mike Giva, serial entrepreneur, charity champion, business advisor, business owner, and professional investor. Mike, firstly, I wanted to say it's absolutely fantastic to see you in such rude health with a lovely tan, um, given <laughs> your health scare and operation last year, mate. May the force of long-continued health um, stay with you, my friend. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much. Right. So, Mike, you're in um, Australia, um, extra additional tan there in, in Perth, Australia, and uh, your temporary base. Have you been blessed with the arrival of your sixth grandchild or not yet? No, still waiting, Peter. It's uh, this week or next, uh, whenever she's ready. But, uh, yeah, no, we're all on standby, so we're lined up for the babysitting. Cool, cool. Okay, right. I'm going to start this interview, if I may, uh, by asking you to speak as a professional investor, we have um, institutional investors that listen to this podcast, high net worth individuals, and private investors as well, Mike. So I wanted to ask you what's been the main learnings and principles you attained from your first career in the Navy? What's been your learnings that you've still attained to yourself at the moment? Well, I try and apply building a brick wall behind me, Peter. That's the key thing. If I can uh, make sure, if I'm going to fall back at all, I don't want to fall too far. There are exceptions to that sometimes, and uh, one can uh, prefix that probably with the word greedy. Uh, however, there are situations where one can overexpose in a particular share and uh, or, a, or a genre, and uh, that does happen to the best of us. We're basically trying to build a brick wall behind so we don't fall back too far. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, obviously, you had a period of time in the in the Navy. What investment advice or savings advice were you given, if any, during, you know, you went in there as a young, very young boy? Uh, none, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it, the pay packets we used to get on a fortnightly basis, we used to queue up for, salute for, and then receive. And uh, I can tell you 90% went to my mother. So... Uh, there was no investment uh, advice or savings advice at all. Uh, but hey, I'm a better person for that, I think. Well, thank you for that. Now, Mike, after the Navy, um, you spent the time looking and doing various other bits and pieces. But the main thing I want to speak about after the Navy was the time you spent a little bit of time about a Dubai business you got into after the Navy. It's the growth of that business of scale and a global reach and the eventual exit of that business. If you want to share a little bit of that, about that with me, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the UK was, um, UK was very interesting, but it became obvious to me that uh, Dubai and the UAE, where I had visited in the Navy, uh, was an up-and-coming place. Sponsorship of Chelsea of, uh, by Emirates originally uh, was a great marker for this. Uh, this country wanted to take a position and be something. So I flew over to Dubai at uh, the beginning of the 2000s, uh, had a look at it, and uh, and it just felt right, to be honest. Everybody's mind 
uh, was in the right place. Everybody's focus was in the right direction. So I, adopting a principle which IBM had had previously when uh, in 91, Lou Gershner broke it up. I just took the view that I could talk to Emirates and see whether or not they would be interested uh, in having their brand, which was clearly valuable, uh, used or utilized uh, by operators that would come in and provide non-core services to them. This was uh, this was accepted, uh, which I'm delighted to say. And uh, we created a security business, airport services business, uh, and very much cash in transit, cash management centers, et cetera, et cetera, business, which, which came uh, on paper under the umbrella of Emirates. Uh, and it was operated by myself and, and a super team. So that business uh, lasted. That business started with zero employees. When I sold it, which was in 2015, I sold it with uh, just over 55,000 staff. Uh, wow! Highlights, apart from the sunshine, highlights. Uh, to be honest with you, was having so many employees of different nationalities, and just making a huge positive difference with a lot of the CSR stuff that we were doing, particularly with uh, with our Indian employees, Bangladeshis, et cetera. It, it, was, uh, it was great and uh, lots of visits to India, lots of visits worldwide. Moving $2 billion a day is no small um, activity and making sure that every note is legal, not a counterfeit, et cetera. That really gave us a, a lot of focus, but... Uh, Wonderful business, 13 years, best 13 years of my life, work-wise, for sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I left behind a very, very happy ship. Brilliant. That's a fantastic example of, of nurturing something from, you know, from the startup sort of stage, isn't it, to making it global? It is, because you shape it in your own fashion. You, you, you have it as you would want it to. So I would use, for instance, PwC. I'd set it up as a corporate PLC mentality it wasn't necessary to have audited accounts it wasn't necessary to do the things i did but i think it's important that you set out your store day one and if you can get the infrastructure right at the beginning building upon that is a much easier thing to do brilliant that touches on to my, my next question which i wanted to, you to expand on please can you tell us about the leadership and business lessons you've gained during that 13 year period of building that business from zero to you know, to those number of employees globally? I think it's very important, and, and many people will say, is employ people who are better qualified than yourself uh, to do the, to do what they're specialising in. Uh, my adage used to be, if, uh, if they couldn't do it better than me, I'd take the salary and do it myself, uh, which was always a popular Brilliant. line at the uh, recruitment process. But no, I had some fabulous people around me. And it's very important when you're trying to adopts British or historic British corporate policies into a brand new country where English is widely used, but not extensively uh, amongst all of the employees. It was very important to bring people together to understand what it is and why we were doing the things we were doing. And of course, why the difference they were making was so important. Um, so leadership wise, I think, Probably, I would say that it was very much a uh, an all inclusive onboard right direction, and I think that the remuneration strategy probably reflected that. 
uh, quite well. I think they missed me when I left. <laughs> Brilliant. No, thank you for that reply. Now, after gaining what, I, what I'm assuming here is um, fin your financial freedom in 2015, aged young, 53, I'm guessing around that age, you returned from Dubai to England. Given you enjoy cricket, golf, holidaying around the world and socialising, not forgetting rugby, um, what were you missing? Why was retirement not for you? What was it? You're like, no, I've got to get up and do some more. It's not very demanding, just simply setting your alarm clock and getting up at X o'clock in the morning uh, simply because you don't want to sleep in and miss the day. And what was happening was uh, my family had expanded. Uh, son had moved to Australia. We were spending a lot of time in the States. My daughter's still in the UK. The reality was, though, that the grey matter has to keep on working. You can't give it up. And it's not easy to, to substitute uh, things that make a difference with uh, hobbies and uh, and the like. So I had to think about doing other things. And those other things, of course, were, were a, a nice uh, salvo of everything from charity work to uh, creating new businesses and investing and backing in into um, small enterprises where people didn't have the cash but certainly had the know-how. Brilliant. We're going to talk about those, some of those small enterprises and business a bit later on. But I firstly want to go straight to the business of how I met you uh, initially. Um, can you briefly tell me about your love affair with Gosport and your current business, the Powder Monkey Brewery, please, Mike? Yeah, sure. Well, it's the love affair, I guess, with Portsmouth uh, originally, of course, being in the Navy, uh, having moved down from Manchester. So uh, having my base there which I had done for 35 years plus it was important that, that the developments that were happening in Portsmouth should be uh, expanded on the other side of Portsmouth Harbour is a beautiful little place called Gosport and when I was looking I couldn't work out the marked difference between you know the east and the west so I started to make inquiries about the west it became obvious that the uh, intention was there. There's an awful lot going on within Gosport. And uh, I lent my two penneth worth in cash and in time uh, to be able to help things develop. One of which, of course, was the, the renovation of the Royal Navy's uh, armaments depot, which we converted into a brewery. Yeah, having the eight foot walls uh, is perfect for brewing and it's a, it's a constant temperature, uh, whether it's hot, cold, raining, whatever it may be outside, it's perfect inside. And then, of course, uh, Baker's Bar and Kitchen, which I purchased the virtual freehold of, that's been turned into a sports bar. That used to be the bakery uh, for Nelson where the ship's biscuits were cooked. So that's how old that building is. So fabulous area. So, so tell me about the connection with um, with the chap that I met. You know, met Tomo, Steve Thompson. What was the connection there? Because you loved your rugby, but you got him involved with that business as well. And then obviously we, we met later on, which I want to talk about. So what's the connection there, the rugby connection and, and getting Steve involved? Tomo involved, sorry. Yeah. Well, when I was in Dubai, I used to host an awful lot of uh, functions and they would be uh, mostly Southern Hemisphere, particularly the All Blacks. Uh, a lot of people would come over and... Uh, we would have some pretty good uh, evenings, all charity-driven, black and white ball in particular. But then I 
I got a. I used to employ Ben Cohen's brother and uh, Justin, and Justin said uh, that Ben had said that Steve was going out to Dubai. Could we sort of say hello to him? So I met up with Steve. We had a good chat. Steve came to work with us uh, for a period of time. He's uh, he's just a fabulous guy, and uh, the reality is is that we kept in touch. throughout uh, the years and of course when i opened the brewery the first thing i was thinking about was the branding the navy branding is easy that's fine but the rugby branding i said to steve would you be interested in being a brand ambassador and of course we created hop and hooker uh, which was our first two ales so yeah very very pleased and uh, and of course we came to leicester we met with you and uh, steve was there Absolutely, I've, I've tasted it, so I can rec- I can recommend it to anyone else that's listening to this as well. Fantastic brand. Thank you for sharing that with me, Steve. Um, Mike, sorry, and it was brilliant to meet Tomo as well. Now, Mike, I want to move on a little bit. We'll come back and talk about Tomo a bit later on as well. Can you talk about your current investing strategies for me, please, and how your portfolio is allocated across global investments, including stocks and unlisted stocks as well? With attention, please, to... Um, the thinking behind some of the ones that you've picked, uh, except I, w- I would prefer if you wouldn't talk about one stock which we mutually hold as well. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, to be honest with you, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to prompt me on which one that uh, may be. But uh, where we are right now, I'm a fine balance, uh, Peter, really between private uh, stock and uh, and public stock. The private stocks are everything from Probably the most exciting is a groundbreaking cancer recognition uh, situation that I'm involved with. Can't say too much about it. Sadly, we've got big pharma all over us uh, and it's it's wrought with NDAs. So at least uh, I say about that, the better. I'm also an advisor to Hughes Energy, which is a conversion, uh, recycling conversion to biofuels. Uh, that's coming across to Europe. And we've also got sites set up in North America. So I'm very excited about that. Um, Powder Monkey, you know about. uh, But I'm also talking to several breweries here in Australia. And I would suspect quite quickly that there will be an acquisition by Powder Monkey of a brewery down here. That gives us access to Southeast Asian markets where licenses are fairly difficult to get hold of. Uh, We have... Interest in a wine business in New Zealand. We have um, on the main stock exchange, we could start exchanges. Of course, I'm a non-exec director of an ASX listed company, which is Ava Risk Group, uh, where I was bought in originally to chair the cash services business. We disposed of that three years later for a significant uh, uplift on all expectations. And the business is now in fabulous hands with uh, Mal McGuinness having joined us, uh, having been a president of both uh, Rapiscan and Smith's Detection. We have other businesses, uh, other stocks in the UK. I'm very excited about uh, quite a few of them, uh, but I would probably highlight Zephyr Energy, which I would think that Colin Harrington is just a super manager. Uh, He will do things, and I suspect there'll be news this week just simply on the basis of uh, whether he keeps his promises uh, on the timing of things. And he's not been inaccurate so far in the main. I like that very much. 
Uh, I'm also very interested in uh, the medical side of things. I like the skin biotherapeutics. Again, I like the management. It's very strong. Uh, and I know cases where psoriasis and eczema, et cetera, et cetera, have uh, literally disappeared in front of us. So that's very exciting. Uh, so I have huge expectations for that business. Tell me about um, Zephyrs. You said that was the largest investment that you've got. What was, what was the keen interest there? You, you, said, you said about the fantastic management. What about the technology that they're involved in, Mike? Because I know you're a technologist really at heart. Well, what I like about Zephyr is uh, is that they've pronounced themselves to be ESG active. And so everything that they're doing on, on the drilling side uh, and bringing it out, uh, they're doing with considerations to the environment and to the people that live in, in that area or those areas. They've made some smart acquisitions about in Utah, uh, some very smart. Uh, they've got some collective uh, weight with Dominion and one or two other organizations over there. It's going to be a very exciting time. And of course, Biden is giving the thumbs up or has given the thumbs up for America to be self-sufficient in fuel, which it pretty much could be anyway. Uh, and I suspect that this is going to be a very short investment because by the time some of the bigger chaps are gonna have a look at it, they're gonna think that this is uh, something well worth investing in. I don't know any more than that at this stage, other than if Colin Harrington tells me something, I'm pretty much likely to believe it. Cool, thank you very much. And then you mentioned the skin biotherapeutics. Biotherapeutics. Yeah, skin, skin's very exciting. Skin's very exciting. But I know, see, I'm involved in other things as well. So back to the private side, I'm involved in things in, uh, in Sweden, uh, which is not yet listed, but uh, it's significant. And that's having huge impact on IBS and potentially multiple cirrhosis, certainly ME. So these things are all under the radar at the moment and not until they come into uh, the telescope of um, well, the city and so on and so forth have most people heard of them. Very excited, very excited. There's a lot going on at the moment in Europe. Yeah, you're a very busy man. And then you've got the, the connection which we met at the, the event we held in Leicester to raise money for the charity, um, the pool bag connection and the ex-Vivo as well. Yes, I mean, again, Cahill and Jeremy, two very fine leaders. I mean, you've only got to look at Amrit recently uh, to see exactly the, the seats that uh, Cahill laid. Uh, and you'll see where Poolbeg's going to go, ex-Vivo, of course. Uh, it's just a fabulous idea, and it's very, very well uh, activated. Poolbeg, new... Very small entity. I think it came in at give or take eight or ten pence. I can't remember. It's still about ten pence at the moment. Uh, it's a long way from two years ago when it had nothing. Uh, and now all of a sudden it has what it has. It's clearly undervalued. It's clearly an entity which uh, has legs. Uh, and no advice intended, but uh, it's one that I'll be staying with for quite some time. Thank you very much for that reply. Now, Mike... I need to ask this to the strategist um, and people looking into investing into things long term. When you make an investment in a listed entity, and are buying, are you buying? I get the impression you're buying for the long term. What are you seeing in a company that enables you to have that level of conviction? You mentioned leadership policies already. 
think leadership, I, th I think on a listed company, everything's in the public domain. So you have to take a different perspective or a different stance as to where you're looking at it from as to why it's important to you. Cash is clearly important because who knows when the next uh, downturn will come. Businesses that have cash that don't need to, to borrow uh, are generally sounder in my uh, experience. So entities that have plenty of cash, I would look at the management, number one, but I would also look at the nature of the business that they're in. And uh, whilst everybody's chasing the lithium, et cetera, et cetera, at the moment, I'm sure that that's the next marketplace. I just feel that there may be a little bit too excitement potentially at this moment in time. And, uh, and I think things might level down. But as a good friend said to me, you know, when demand increases, the price doesn't go down. So maybe I'll rethink that fairly shortly. Thank you. I love that you threw in that analogy with lithium as well. Thank you for that. Now, please can share with us an example of one of your greatest winning investment returns, period of holding, its ups and downs, and eventually your su successful exit, please. Uh, followed by the lessons learned from that investment, please, Mike. The best, did you say? One of the best. best yeah. yeah, best winning. Well, I have to, I have to say, investing in myself. Uh, the problem is, it's commercially sensitive, so I can't give you the details. But I can tell you, uh, it was a significant six-figure outcome. So I was very happy. Uh, so investing in myself is probably where I would take the biggest risk generally in life. Uh, but the upside, the upside ones, if I go on the listed stock exchanges and that type of stuff, I did very well out of a company called Excite, Excite Energy, I think it was called, if I remember rightly, uh, consolidated gold fields back probably almost in the 90s, 80s, late 80s, 90s. Uh, and would you believe it, Gulf Keystone at one stage, uh, although it looks like it might be getting back on track, uh, Gulf Keystone was very, very exciting. I was in the Middle East at the time, and um, people were supplied in herbal to look after those guys, so I could see how busy and how active it was. The fact that they didn't didn't get paid for some time was probably a bit of a downer, which then is back to the mm -hmm. cash side. Brilliant. No, th thank you for that. Now, obviously, we have to touch on the downside of it. And you've, you've mentioned to me previously about an example where you lost a significant amount of money. So I want you to talk about the learnings from that um, regarding, um, as, as you, you'll, you can name the company, and the lessons you learned from that particular investment. What went wrong? What was your level of conviction? And what did you see that didn't you, did, what didn't you see for that to happen when you took that particular loss on that particular company? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it still may not be... Uh, history. The, so Stephen Holgate uh, is one of the founding uh, three or four people at Synergen. Synergen was very exciting. Obviously, it was driven by historically um, respiratory viruses, et cetera, et cetera. But COVID came in and accentuated both the focus and accelerated the speed. It was obvious to me that if it worked, it was going to be a, a, a macro solution uh, and the first uh, of the second phase results was significant i think it was something like 78 percent improved chance of recovery with a you know significant number of days less in hospital and i was so confident about this that i decided 
to switch from shareholding, exclusive shareholding, to shareholding and spread betting. Um, I was that confident. So, of course, when you move to when you move your shares and transfer them into a spread betting uh, situation, you're making the casino take yet one more spin of the wheel. And what happened was it sort of capitulated simply because the experiments and the testings and the phase testings that they were doing were not given enough time and probably not uh, managed as well as perhaps it could have been. This spooked the market. I was on a flight on the way back from the Bahamas, uh, getting what I thought was ready to come back to the UK and be fairly excited. Unfortunately, as I say, we dropped down to about 14 or 15 pence from a couple of pounds, uh, and I wiped off 1.2 million pound in one literally hour. So wow. yeah, I'm a lucky guy because it didn't affect my life significantly. But what it did do is it made me think about the risk-taking, which I had previously not uh, engaged with but in this particular occasion like I said at the outset I suspect it was probably a bit of greed uh, or it was just simple over-reliance uh, on what I thought were the facts uh, without taking into account the externalities that it that impacted it so the reality was a couple of 1.2 million there or thereabouts uh, down the pan gone wiped out in seconds and when that happens you need a bit of resilience of course, what happened at the same time was I got diagnosed with bowel cancer. So I came straight from, from the Bahamas into hospital, had to deal with the bowel cancer, sadly just dealt with the death of my sister, one of my sisters, and of course, the synergen issue. So all three conspired to make it a fairly unpleasant couple of months. Uh, but we are where we are, and that's life. Yeah, I, I just love the, the way that you've just... You know, circle that and go. You know, that's lessons learned. You know, you're here. You're in good health. You know, you just you've dealt with the loss of your sister or dealing with the loss of your sister. Uh, I think I think what the reason why you and I resonate, I resonate with you so much, having met you, is that you just speak from the heart all the time, Mike. You know, and you're very very good at getting the best out of everybody, including yourself. And you you drag everyone else up to 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 aspire to be at your level. So that's why that's why I'm speaking to you today because I just admire you so much. So thank you for sharing that. That's very kind, Peter. That's very kind. But you're absolutely right. I guess at the end of the day, I'm just a northerner. Uh, but the reality, you know, there's no point beating around a bush or trying to be something you're not. Uh, absolutely. Let's just get down with it. Absolutely. Now, um, Mike, you're, I want you to expand on this a little bit. You're, you're a leader and owner of businesses. You're speaking to all of these professional business people as well, and you're leading them and you're advising them. But I want you to speak as a professional private investor. What are the leadership qualities and characteristics that you're looking for in the C-suite of a company that aligns with your own characteristics traits and encourages to back that listed company, Mike? Overwhelmingly, the idea, the activities that the company is in, overwhelmingly. And then I need to see the, the broad skill set of the individuals who are leading that company, to be really honest. And if I can see, it's no good having a super 
CEO, but uh, you fall at the weakest link in the chain, which is the, you know, the number two, number three, whatever it may be. So I do like to get out and about and, and meet people. I do like to meet CEOs, as you know. I meet them reasonably regularly. Uh, and if I can meet them and meet the team, it gives me a good impression. I have some pretty good contacts. So if I don't know somebody, I'll get a view on them from somebody I trust. But that's that's really what takes me or takes the pound out of my pocket and puts it into a share. Uh, because if I'm going to transfer the reliance of my own ability to to improve my wealth situation by giving it to others to do on my behalf, then I have to be pretty sure. Love that reply. Thank you very much. Um, what aspects of investing matters most to you? And from an investor's perspective, what would you change regarding the investing landscape? Is there anything that every time you go to investor, you're thinking about investing a, a significant amount of money and you, go, you, you roll your eye at the, the red tape or the, the due diligence you've got to do? Is there anything that you would change, Mike? It's a good question. Um, I think probably more access on a more regular basis or more updates from from companies would put us in a better position there are organizations at the moment i could probably name you half a dozen but i'll just stick with two uh hurricane energy and of course delarue both of which are mind-bogglingly confusing as to why opportunities don't seem to have been taken and explanations don't seem to have been given uh, for board actions, historic board actions. It's just, I mean, Hurricane was just an unbelievable situation. Let's give everything away to the bondholders and uh, you shareholders should be happy. I mean, it was outrageous. I think it was only the intervention of uh, Crystal Amber that stopped that and ultimately a high court judge. Uh, Delarue is the same. I mean, Delarue is just uh, it's the last, or it was at one time, uh, a, a wonderful organisation, a very proud British organisation. Now it's probably third or fourth in the pecking order worldwide. Uh, it really hasn't. It really hasn't uh, impressed me. No, some good examples there. Thank, thank you ever, ever so much. Now. Um, we talked about Tomo earlier on um, and the fact that you came up to, both of you came up to Leicestershire to support me um, with the Memphis Charity Fundraiser I did in, in 2021, raised nearly 24 grand at uh, that particular time. Um, please can you share with us what you're looking at at the moment regarding homelessness and UK armed forces veterans, Mike, because I know it's something very important to you. I wanted you to get the opportunity to talk a little bit about, about that, but try, try not to get it too spicy regarding the population political aspects of it, please. No, no, absolutely not. Well, one thing you don't know, by the way, is that on that very night in Leicester that we were there was my best friend died that night. Uh, had oh, a gosh. That's right. But the show had to go on. Uh, and that's the first time you've heard that. So what am I doing now? I, I've just taken the view that there's an awful lot of um, overlooking of veterans, veteran situations. The problem with veterans uh, is that they pretty often don't ask for help. And because of that, they'll make do, they'll get on with it, they'll shrug their shoulders, I'm all right, Jack, whatever it may be. And that's not really, having been there, that's not really 
the best situation because it may good may do well in the services. So I'm trying to uh, set up at this moment in time, working very closely with um, Portsmouth Naval Base Property Trust, uh, who are overseeing the assets of the uh, the former Royal Navy site. I'm trying to set up down there a situation whereby we have a basically an incubator. Uh, whereby homeless veterans can come in, they can work on a uh, 20 hours a week or whatever it may be that we agree with on a voluntary basis. They stay there until they get settled, they get bank accounts, they get rid of uh, bonuses, uh, benefits, and other established uh, stabilizing issues that, that people seek. Once they get themselves a full-time job, then that's uh, we've feel that we've done our job and they're comfortable that they can move on to make place for the next guys and the next girls that that may need that um, exact same service so no politics involved at all uh, i'm very pleased to say that johnny mercer seems to have put it on the agenda the appointment of him in the first instance was uh was was a wonderful thing uh so i'm i'm hopeful that we are going to be moving forward quite quickly on that and uh if we do it's a contribution to society, which I think because most service people in the main uh, have got the right intentions, but unfortunate circumstances, uh, and they're very unlikely generally to know how to deal with it outside of what was a service life. Brilliant. No, that's fantastic. I'm so sorry to hear that about your friend going back to 2020, 2021 as well. Um, but yeah, please keep me posted on that. And I'd love to help and support you with that as well, as I've been doing as well, trying to pay it forward with supporting Tom with all his endeavours as well. Thank yeah. you, Mike. Now, I've got a, a final question for you, Mike, um, regarding this particular interview. You are a high net worth individual and a professional investor. It always intrigues me why, as investors that have got so much wealth, so many are gravitated or forced or encouraged, or find the need to have that additional spice by going into the nano caps and small caps. What is it about you, me, and others that we, we who gravitate towards the smaller, spicy end of the market? Well, some might say we're fools. Uh, <laughs> is is the is the short answer? Uh, but the reality is, is, I still think that we feel a sense of accomplishment when something which is not fully formed. Uh, becomes formed and thereafter grows. So I would say it's probably that. It's almost a nurturing within ourselves uh, projected onto small companies and organisations that may have the idea but generally don't have the support. So I would suggest it's probably that. Uh, nothing too exciting, nothing too technical, but I'm sure that's the answer. Brilliant. Right. That was absolutely brilliant speaking with you. Um, I've covered all my questions. Is there any other pearls of wisdom you want to share? You've been in the market as a as a business leader, as a as a long term investor in 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 listed and unlisted um, entities. Anything you want to share that we've not covered uh, for those that are looking to begin the journey of investing? I think I would probably. If... <laughs> I mean, the reality, Peter, is is you can't invest what you what you can't afford to lose. That's rule number one. So Absolutely. whether it's Maslow or any other hygiene factor, recognition, outlook situation, you have to take care of the basics and the fundamentals. That's the reality. 
So if I was a just beginning investor and I probably didn't have a lot that I could afford to put at risk, I'd go big and I'd probably go dividend driven. And if I was going to do that, then I could see that it could form a small part of my portfolio of income, which in time will grow. And thereafter, you know, to reinvest the dividends or to take those dividends and to put them into smaller entities with more capital growth outlook would be a, a best way of doing it. I would say that's probably pretty much what I did. The largest share, the largest company I have shares in is Whitbread. Uh, and it's still a pretty good dividend payer. It still kicks on. It's dealt with the cost of coffee situation. It's moving on. And it's a pretty well-managed company. So I don't just go for the small ones. No, neither do I. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, I, I will be cheeky then and throw in a final, another another final question. Um, you've got a grandchild arriving any any minute now, any day now. Um, you've got the opportunity to invest a large sum of money for her, but you can only choose between Microsoft or Google. And she has to remain invested until she's 21 years, he or she, until she's 21 years of age, Mike. Which one do you choose and why? I, I would choose Google. Okay. I would choose Google because I. the reason why is because I think Google is more of the future Microsoft. It's already obvious that Microsoft, whatever Microsoft can do or does do can be done by many other entities. Google just does what it does better than most. Brilliant response. Thank you ever so much. That was Mike McKeever, serial entrepreneur, charity champion, business advisor, business owner, and professional investor. Mike, thank you ever so much for joining us on this Investing Matters interview and podcast all the way from Perth in Australia. Stay healthy, my friend. Take care. God bless. Thanks, Peter. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.